I'm not reading much anymore because uh, just the work I'm doing doesn't leave me much time. Suzanne and I have discovered a, a, a Catholic writer whose writings I just think are um, so gratifying, um, um, so enriching. Robert Barron is a bishop in the church. He's, he, 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 I guess he did a TV series on Catholicism and then wrote a book coming out of that. But we, we've come across, so we, we got that book and we're enjoying it. Suzanne went online and got a couple of other books. We've got two other books by him, one of them called Seeds, and the other one is Something Paradoxes, Vibrant Paradoxes. The, the beauty of, here, let me tell you, because I would encourage you to read this. This guy is really, really good. Um, in, in both of those collections, um, he, he's, he's, he writes three-page essays, little three-page essays, so it just doesn't take a lot. In Seeds, he's taking a look at popular culture, movies, books, lectures, and he's really taking on the church and the secular world, but he, he does it in, with, such a, with such a clarity of thought and a real spirit of charity. Sometimes I wish, personally, I wish he'd get a little bit tougher on some of the Hollywood stars. Um, but, and same thing in Vibrant Paradoxes. They're all three-page essays clear and focused and sharp, um, wonderful heart, wonderful mind. Um, it's a, a real a strength to our faith to read something like that. It's not long. Robert Barron, Seeds and Vibrant Paradoxes. Okay, name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, again for the gift of our life from you, um, the gift of yourself to us in the Mass, your words to us. Um, today, um, we're especially thankful um, to be celebrating John Paul's um, Saints Day name, name day, um, Saints Day. Um, what an extraordinary person what a, that any of us could have lived uh, during his papacy. Um, his call to the youth, um, the warmth that he had as a person, the brightness of his mind. I'm going to mention this later in the text, I mean in our, in our class, that two of the greatest works that he did, one of them is called Fide Ratio, Faith and Reason. The other one was Theology of the Body. When, this is on a personal, when I read Theology of the Body, it was one of the, this was a palpable, palpable experience for me. Reading that made me feel as if I were back in time with Christ when he was walking through the streets healing people because I looked at that body as one of the great healing powers of our time. If you think anything about what's going on in our world for the last hundred years, you know that the body is so demeaned. The Protestant world looks down on it. The scientific world doesn't hold it in much favor. The, the Catholic world should celebrate it. He wrote a, body, a book called Theology of the Body. It was, it was like Christ helping a world to try to make a place for the body in which the body has been so demeaned. So, John Paul, thank you for um, your great, good, great gifts to us. Hear our prayers, please. Carry them with you. Um, ask for a special grace on, is it Sharon? Sharon. Sharon. Um, help heal her and whatever happens, help quiet her heart. Um, let her be strengthened in her faith to endure any pain or the prospect of a shortened life, be with her, be with Gail, 
um, receive her mother into your kingdom, forgive her sins. Um, let Gail's heart be at peace, trusting in you, particularly with our prayers. Um, let our prayers speed her if she has time in purgatory. And ask for a special prayer for Christopher and Kayla. Um, help them um, just find in this struggle a source of becoming better, both of them, and to bring a spirit of forgiveness whatever they do going forward. Um, we offer these prayers, and for Suzanne and me, for Suzanne and me, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay. Can you t take out your psalms? I, I, do you guys remember, didn't I start our first class with psalms? Does anybody remember? No. I didn't? Okay. But I thought I, I'm almost, because I said we're going to, because this was the beginning of the lyric tradition, because most people don't think of the psalms as lyrics. I didn't do a psalm then. No. Never. Supernatural love, but no song. Okay. We're going to do a couple songs. Okay. The lyric tradition begins here. These are the lyrics. Right? Mm -hmm. What was the instrument to which they were played? The lyre. The lyre from which we get the lyric. This is the beginning of the lyric tradition. So we, sh we shift from, in the lyric tradition, we shift from holy, sacred forms of music, of prayer, to profane. We enter the secular world and we get the lyrics as, you know, we genuinely, genu generally tend to think of them. I want to read two, two of them here, and then I'm going to read um, one from Shakespeare that I've read before, but, and I've got a particular reason for reading it here, and you'll see, but Psalm 127. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. <clears throat> I love that ever since the first time I read it. If we don't do everything we do with him, we're in trouble. We can build, we can have mansions, we can put up these great homes, but something will be wrong somewhere in the foundation of him if, if we don't do all that building with him. Did you disagree? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, Psalm 137. I love this one because it's saying, um, asking, how can we sing a song outside of the temple? You know, they're in exile right now. Their captives want them to sing, the Israelites. And they don't have the heart for it because their temple, their whole religious way of life has been taken away. So implicitly what they're saying is all song 
all song arises in a love of God. That's where it comes from. That's what it's for. Um, Think. Sorry, Doc. you have to deal with the last two lines of this one. Voice of realism here. Um, I'm trying to think. If you if you read the Psalms, you know that um, there's songs of mourning, there are songs of grief, there are songs of resentment and bitterness, and I mean the the, the Psalms represent a, a wide range of human emotions. But there are lots of them where it makes it clear that to be in God's presence, you can't be in his presence without singing. It's a harmony of the heart. And there are lots of songs that talk about all things in creation singing. Sing to me a song. And you, you know, all, everything in creation is part of a song. So the origins of the psalm, or the lyric, sorry, the origins of the lyric are here that we were meant to sing. I, 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 I've said this before, people probably laugh at it. I can't imagine anything being said in heaven that isn't in poetry. Not because we consciously, you know, but because there can't be anything but a harmony to what comes out of our mouth, if, if that's what will happen there. So it's important to see that the lyric isn't just an artificial construct. It's, it's the natural outpouring of the heart in love or joy and sometimes in sorrow um, <clears throat> because sorrow itself implies a joy that the thing that we wanted most we lost. Psalm 137 by the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion on the willows there we hung up our lyres for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying sing us one of the songs of Zion how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem. How they said, raise it, raise it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, you devastator. Happy shall be, happy shall he be who requites you with what you have done to us. Happy shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. It's asking for the destruction of Babylon for destroying Jerusalem and the temple. Um, very quickly, can you turn to Shakespeare? It's on at 130. I've read this, you, those of you who've been doing this, you, you'll remember it because we've done it probably a couple of times already. My reason for doing this today is that we're looking back on what we um, talked about last week. What's the difference between starting with something real and tangible in, our, in front of us and starting with an idea in our head? Yeah? It's easy, it's easy to love a woman you idealize until you come to know her as she actually is, or you can turn it around. It's easy for a woman to love a man in the way she idealizes him until you have to confront his sins. I mean, that's true for all of us. Shakespeare's writing this song 
um, in the context of the Petrarchan tradition or the tradition because if you know anything about poetry, you know Petrarch was the great Italian poet who followed Dante, who wrote all of these songs about Laura and idealized her everywhere. All of his poems talk about the tempests of his heart and how he weeps and he puts her on this pedestal and talks about how beautiful she is and how much that adds to his grief because he can't have her, things like that. Shakespeare's taking that whole tradition and critiquing it. He's showing that it's, he writes with that in his mind. All poets do. Um, he writes with that tradition in his mind. I want to read it here because we're going to talk a little bit about that when we do the review in a minute. So he's aware of Petrarch, he's aware of his poetry, the, the power of that tradition, and he's answering it here. And I think I said this before, remember, the Shakespearean sonnet has three quatrains. The Jones Very sonnet we read last week had three quatrains and a couplet. Same thing here, because it's a Shakespearean sonnet. Three quatrains and then a couplet conclusion. My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. Yet by heaven I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. Whose love would be greater? The, the love a man had because he idealized a woman, so he made her into this thing that she isn't, or a man who was able to love his wife. Um, Warts and all. Right. <laughs> Warts and all. Well, wires for hair, bad breath. <laughs> I grant I never saw a goddess go, my mistress when she walks treads on the ground, and yet by heaven I think my love is rare as any she belied with false compare. Wonderful wisdom, wonderful heart. Okay, Milton. Last week we looked at chapters 6, 7, and 8. Um, 6 had to do with the war in heaven. 7 had to do with the creation story. And it was there, remember, that when um, Raphael um, was talking with Adam, um, about creation, Adam is being is is described as having a living soul. You can put that in quotes, and Eve for race. That he he's looked at as having a living soul, she for race. If you put that together with the first descriptions we had of the couple when Satan first approaches Eden, you remember, he he for contemplation was made. Um, for valor, there was something noble in his demeanor. Eve was soft and sweet, and it seems to me Milton's absolutely accurate in describing women. I mean, women physically are generally much softer and more given to delicacies and beauty than men. Um, so I think his descriptions are fairly accurate. But it's questionable what we're supposed to take away when he says for race as if, you know, women couldn't contemplate or, or didn't have intellects to use as well. 
So a picture is taking shape in the way that he's looking at Adam Eve, in the way that he presents them. Remember, Eve goes to the pool, sees herself, she can't pull herself away from the image. Um, because the beauty of it is so great. She doesn't know that it's a picture of her, but she will come to know that. Adam can't take his eyes off of her once he sees her. So Milton's very, very clear about the power of beauty and, and, and how, how much that's identified with a woman. That's one of the graces. And, and in doing that, Milton is one in the whole tradition. Dante says the same thing. Homer says the same thing. Virgil. All the poets recognize that there's that the transcendent quality in women, that quality that, that women have that, rep, that gives us an image of something divine, is beauty. And remember, beauty by itself has a wholeness. It's complete. There's nothing lacking. That's what beauty means. There's this beauty. You don't want anything. So uh, Milton is one with the whole tradition in the way that he presents women that way. Um, we spent a good bit of time taking a look at that passage where Raphael um, talks about the method that he uses to tell this story. Because remember he said, if you will only be obedient one day, you will rise into the heavens as a spirit. You'll be um, etherealized. And Adam is puzzled by that and says, what do you mean if I'm obedient? Because he has no sense that there's anything more to life than the way he's been living it. It's then that Raphael says there's a danger, and he tells the story of the fall of the demons, the, um, the revolt against God. Um, and remember, it's there that Raphael says, um, in order to tell you about invisible realities, I have to use corporeal images. I have to use physical images. Because we're, we're not angelic. We're, we're corporeal creatures. That's, we have a body. And we talked about this, and I want to go back over this because um, this seems to me to go to the heart of one of the differences between the Protestant and Catholic world. And I asked the question, what's the difference between starting high or low? What's the difference between starting with an idea in our head or with a thing in front of us? What's the difference? St. Paul says, um, we come to know the invisible things through the things that are made. That's from St. Paul. We come to know about invisible realities through things that are visible to us, things that are sensible. And I just briefly went over the differences between Aristotle and Plato, or, yeah, because the two of them speak so directly to what's going on here. Remember that for Plato, Plato said, uh, <clears throat> we can have no knowledge of material things because material things are always in flux, right? Point to something in the world that isn't changing. Look at a picture on a wall, and even if we don't see it decaying, we know that in 200 years, decay will take place. And, and we know it in our own lives. It's visible to us all the time. Um, so he said, you can't have real knowledge of material realities because they're all undergoing change and motion. That's a part of what makes them up. What we can have, Plato says, is doxa. Doxa. Opinion. Doxa. Opinion. But we can't know for sure. 
the only certain knowledge we can have is of the forms. And Plato believed that there was a realm in, made up of forms. They're the templates, the patterns, the archetypes of all existing material things. So the only way we can know trees is if we know the forms. I know this is a brief lesson in philosophy, but it's, it's important, so bear with me for just a second. This may seem a, a stretch from Milton, but it's not. Let me put it this way. If you had a eucalyptus tree and an oak tree, how could you know they were trees when they're both different? Right? Tracy and Joan are two very different people. Yeah? They're very different. What allows us to say they're both humans? Right? Plato, Plato knew that the only way we could know um, that they're both human is that they have an essence that they share. It's in their nature. They're human. The essence that they have is their humanity. That's their essence, right? So even if they're different, um, let's say somebody who's Chinese may have slanted eyes or somebody who's black or white or Indian or you know, whatever racial or sexual difference between a man and a woman, we still know we're all humans because our mind can grasp the essences of things. Because the essences show us what we all share in common, despite whatever differences we have. That's clear, yeah? Plato claimed that there was a realm of these forms, and it was only by knowing them that we could know things here on Earth, because things here on Earth undergo change all the time, okay? Um, now, here's where it gets tricky. The Middle Ages were platonic. St. Augustine was platonic in his thinking. Um, it, it led to some problems in some places. And, by the way, which, which Thomas straightens out. Um, under a platonic regime, there's no way to have sciences because sciences are concerned with material causes. Plato disparaged them. Sciences don't develop in the West after the ancient world until Aristotle returns to the West. And I've said that those of you who've been, you know, who did the Dante with me before, when Aristotle returns to the West, it, it has this tremendous shakeup effect. People begin to think about regimes in new ways in art, and sciences emerge out of that. The Copernican Revolution is partly a product of recovering Aristotle. Because for Aristotle, we could know material causes. Because he said, even though, even though things exist and they undergo changes, they all carry their essences in them. The essence, of a, the, the essence of a pine tree, say, or a eucalyptus, is the same thing as an oak, and we can grasp it. Because what our, what our senses deliver to us, this eucalyptus tree, our mind abstracts the essence of it. So our mind can know the essences of things. I don't know that I... Is that clear? Is that clear? Baby, do you, because you... Is that clear? <laughs> You know that dogs have no intellects, right? They have senses. Dogs have some memory, they have senses, so they can, they can see sensible things in front of them, right? They don't have a, an intellect. With an intellect, we can, we can, our senses deliver something to us, a book. The, the poem, Supernatural Love. We can read a poem like that and our, our mind can grasp the concrete images of it, 
but can we grasp the meaning of it? To do that requires an act of the intellect. It has to say, what is this about? And then we look at it and say, ah, this is what it's about. That requires an act of the mind. So the mind can abstract, it can get to an essence of things beyond the senses, but it can't get to them without what the senses deliver. The senses are absolutely, our bodies are absolutely essential to us, our nature, okay? Okay, so um, Aristotle, Plato's, well here, so Plato says, we can't have a knowledge of corporeal <coughs> material things because they're always undergoing change we can only have certain knowledge by grasping the forms. And to, to do that, Plato saw mathematics as a requirement because mathematics abstracts from things. Here, I mean, if that isn't clear. Um, here's a writing instrument, here's a writing instrument. There are two things here. Do I need these two things here to understand the idea of two? Do I need these here to understand what two is? Mathematically, no, you don't need a concrete, because you you're moving to a world of quantity, a world of abstraction already. It can be two birds, two, right? It can be two in a geometric scale or something. Anyway, Plato thought, thought it was only by, by getting beyond the body that we could comprehend the forms of things. Aristotle said, absolutely not. We come to the invisible by starting with things and by learning to abstract from them and by learning to use analogies, um, we can rise to the grasp of things that are more universal. Now let me stop, because that was probably far more abstract than anybody expected, but any questions on that? Is that clear? Because it goes to the heart of what we've been doing, even if it's not obvious right now. But I want to I make sure, is everybody okay at this point? Milton and the Protestants say faith is the basis of our relationship with God. So does the Catholic. We all say faith is fundamental. Christ says that. Um, we have to, why is faith required? Because we can't see God. Right? Faith is the certainty of things unseen. The certitude of that. That's an act of faith. Um, we, our faith is that God is real, even if we can't see him. Um, but the Protestants take that another step, and you know that because it's on the basis of that of that, that they read the Bible, they construct a stru various structures of authority, um, the various readings of the Bible. Um, Milton says that He's glad to see that there are so many people taking different positions on their understanding of the Bible because for him it's a proof of their liberty, their freedom. He doesn't, he doesn't trouble over the fact that they contradict each other. Why is that not a problem? If somebody says Christ is in the Eucharist and somebody says he's not, there's a problem, right? It's either true or it's not. So we've got a problem. Why does Milton not have a problem with that? Because if, if your starting point is a supersensory reality, you have faith in this, and nobody can see it, who's to say that you're not right, or that somebody else isn't? It's an absolutely private thing. That's what Luther did. He made faith a, a matter of a completely private thing, a completely subjective thing. You can't prove it. So nobody can question it. 
Um, your authority for saying that is just as good as anybody else's. Even if it means you say Christ is not in the Eucharist or whatever other claim you make. Who's to say you're not right or anybody else is not right? But it, what it leads to is a kind of relativism. The truth can't be established that what anybody holds is just as good as what anybody else holds. So, um, um, so one of the problems we're left here with here is the problem that Raphael introduces to us in the, this, you know, the section we went over. He's got to find some way of making invisible realities present to us, knowable to us. So he has to search around for forms. And here's the problem. In Aristotle, if you start with the ordinary thing in front of you, according to Aristotle, through an act of abstraction or putting things together, you can arrive at the invisible. Okay? So when we look at a poem like The Wind Hover or Supernatural Love, you can start with a, with a, wind, a bird or a girl um, knitting, needling, doing a needlepoint or whatever, with a sampler. Yeah? And in both of those, we find something invisible, supernatural taking place. Okay? Yeah? Hopkins sees in the wind hover the fire, the plow. He finds in that a participation in the cross. So the universal, the eternal, is at work in a concrete thing. But he starts with the concrete thing. When Milton, when Raphael starts telling the story of the angels and the war in heaven, he has to find something to make it clear to Adam what actually took place. So what he does is he describes these angels going out with swords, cutting swords off, cutting arms off, angels growing back together, picking up mountains, right? What's the problem with that? What's the problem? Well, he's trying to describe the indescribable. Yeah, but same thing here. It's wholly made up. And what's the problem with that? Here, what in, in Aristotle, when we start with an ordinary thing, like a bird, and we just, we, by the way the poet presents it, we become aware that there's something eternal present there. Do we ever lose sight of the bird? You can't, because where else does the invisible exist? No? Evidence. Huh? Evidence. It's there. In the visible thing, right? So even though you get to an invisible reality, can you have that invisible reality apart from the visible thing? Absolutely not. Where else is it? I mean, at least to us, given our limitations as humans, because the way we know is through our bodies. Okay? With Milton, when he's telling the stories, and he's using mountains, angels picking up mountains, what does that help us reveal, understand about the natural order? Here, the two are reciprocal. We come to see invisible things, but we never lose the, we carry them along with us. They're always there. Here, we've got Raphael trying to find corporeal ways of making clear invisible things. Do we ever get down to earthly things in a way that helps us clarify things here? No. Through the, through the Protestant mind, by taking faith as the basis for things, we, we lose our way into the natural order. 
it gets circumvented. We don't ever get back here. We end up in a world of our minds. Is there anything, and, and by the way, think about how that's reinforced when the Protestant nature's depraved. Does Hopkins believe that bird is depraved? Or the little four-year-old girl in what she's doing when she pricks herself? There are moments of holiness in our corporeal nature. In a Protestant mind, the natural order is circumvented. We can't find our way in it anymore. What's there? That is, we lose contact with the body, we lose contact with the natural order. All the analogies that take us up. When we go through Raphael's battle, do we, do, are we any clear to a corporeal mind about what actually goes on here on earth? No, because he's trying to show us angelic realities. What makes this even more problematic, I raised this question before, when he's done with his story, what does he say? The things I've given you were prior to your memory, and they're going to be passed on to posterity. What he passes on is an angelic mode of knowledge. It's the way Milton relates to things. It's present in the whole poem. I, I've been talking about, I mean, I've been trying to be as careful as I could, but you know, all the way through this, he keeps humanizing Satan. To, to make it possible for us to relate. But one of the questions that I've been asking over and over, can a devil really do that? I'm going to read a passage today when we get to these chapters when Satan comes to tempt Eve. He look, he's so overwhelmed by her beauty, Milton describes it as being stupidly good. Can a devil ever recover its goodness again once he's turned? There are serious problems here. Um... If you're just reading his poetry, you can blow right by them. Let me give you a, a more, here. So for Milton, for Milton, nobody can challenge that, what he grasps, because it's a super sensible reality. So for Milton, it doesn't matter if somebody else has another idea, even if it contradicts him. I hope that's clear. That's a troubling notion. And now I'm gonna, I hope, I hope, I don't, I mean, I hope I don't open a can of worms here because I'm going to go to a really touchy subject and I hope you'll just be patient with it if it's bothersome for you. If you look at the abortion conflict today, you've got women whose approach to life rests on the belief that they have complete autonomy. They have the power to do whatever they want at the cost of another human life. They can decide it. What's at issue is nobody can tell them they can't do that. They have that, it's, it's absolute autonomy. I hope that's clear. It can't be questioned. Whatever the grounds are, she can have it. What's the cost of it? Taking of a human life. What's the pro-life side? Life is more important and it puts a limit on a woman's choice. She can't do that because to do that, can take away the life of another person. It's one of the great horror. We, there's a holocaust going on in our world right now. It's genocide. And we're all, we're all, we're all, I am, all of us are involved in it. And it goes to this fundamental problem. Do we have an autonomy, a complete autonomy in our, can we do whatever we want? And if, if any of you have seen the, the movie, um, The Fellowship, or read the books, what's the ring that Frodo wants? What's the power, why, why does everybody want that ring? What does it symbolize? Power. Power. Doesn't it like liberate your thought? 
absolute autonomy. Put that ring on, you can do whatever you want. By the way, he gets that, by the way, he gets that from Plato in the Republic. It's, it's in a section of the Gaiji's ring. Put that ring on and you can turn invisible. You can do whatever you want because nobody, because why don't you do it in the world? Because people might catch you. Put that ring on, you can do whatever you want. That ring is an image of, this is, that ring is an image of complete autonomy. What does Satan want? Absolute autonomy. He doesn't want to be a creature. He wants, he thinks if he could do that, he could do whatever he wanted, like God. Can God do whatever he wants? Yeah, so long as we understand God will never do evil. God can only be good. Will man only do good if he had all that power? So this whole thing that you know starts in the 16th century with faith has become so complicated and it's, it's undergone such mutations, such changes, but we're actually facing it here today. Out in the open, here it is. Complete autonomy, complete authority in yourself. You can decide it. What happens to Milton over the course of his life? Catholic, Anglican, Presbyterian, a religion to himself. Um, what's the outcome of complete autonomy in our modern world for a woman? What's the end result? Death. If you can do whatever you want, it means you can let another life go. So the problems that we're looking at, sorry to sort of break from Milton here, but I really, I really want you to see that, the, that what's at issue in these different way of knowing is not small at all. Not small at all. Plato would never have gone this far, the way I'm talking about. Because he believed, Plato, like Aristotle, were, were both called realists. Plato believed these forms were real. And if we grasped them, if we, we had to conform our minds with them, they were good. So we would become good knowing them. So Plato would never gone as far as we've gone. They're both realists in that sense, but there's a fundamental difference between them. <coughs> And if we look at Milton closely enough, we can see what Raphael is doing in expressing, describing his method is exactly what Milton himself is doing. So it's really important to see, this is a, a, an extraordinary poem, it's a beautiful poem, but it's, it's revealing of so many of the problems that characterize our age. Okay, let me stop. Um, I want quick review. Um, any any questions? I, I know that's probably troubling. Um, um, what Luther did was exalt the private will. He made that will absolute. He broke it off from the church. Um, it made it possible for individual human beings no longer have to be accountable to other things to see that there was authority, or even to believe, as the Catholic Church does, that the tradition is important because it, it protects the authority that was handed down by Christ. Um, you know, and and, and I, I, I hope what I did several weeks ago will help clarify that. Remember when I looked at that passage in Matthew where Christ says, who, who do they say I am? Think about that. God, that just blows me away. Just blows me away. Think about it. Christ is saying, who do, who do they say I am? Why does he say that? 
Because he know, does he not know? He's, he's God. Who do they say I am? They don't know. Then he turns to the disciple. Who do you say I am? They can't answer. Then he turns to Peter. Who do you say I am? Why would he ask that unless it was clear that he was somebody people might not understand or misunderstand? Right? Look at all the heresies in the early church. Everybody was saying, Christ is this, Christ is this, Christ is this. That opening line in Hamlet, who's there? Who is that? Who's the ghost? Can we trust it? Who's that? She could point her finger at me and say, who, who are you? I think I told you the story when, when Susanna and I were younger and she, we'd been married a couple of years and she said, <laughs> said you're so other. <laughs> if you grow up in a family with women and you suddenly meet a man and all I can say is the longer we begin, begin to, I mean, this, Chester has this wonderful line in a, in a collection of essays he's got on the family where he says, he's responding to divorce and he says, it, because the grounds for divorce in the modern world, incompatibility. That's, by the way, that's Milton's argument in his divorce tracks. That's the first defense of divorce. If you're incompatible, you've got grounds for divorcing. Chesterton's answer is, if incompatible, compatibility for a reason for divorce, you should never get married because men and women are incompatible by nature. <laughs> All I've learned the longer I've been with Suzanne, and I'm sure the lo is that we are so different by nature. If, if we can get together as one flesh, it'll only be by the grace of God. <laughs> Because by nature, we're so different. I can't believe you all don't feel that. Men and women stand in the world very, very differently. No? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so let me stop. I'm getting too far off on this. Any questions about what we're talking about? You can tell this. You said that you're the Wait, well, you can tell that this is something I'm. <laughs> I'm passionate. I was trying to find the negative way to understate that, but sorry. Uh, the, Patrick, so, so yeah, sorry. Through the Protestant emphasis of faith, something like along those lines, you said we um, we lose all sense of something. I said, yeah, I, I may have said it too boldly. What I said is we, they, we, if, if we start with that in the way that the Protestant, the way we've inherited from Luther and Calvin, and that we lose our way into the natural order, we can't find our way back into it. It's depraved. Um, I, I mean, if you look at it, I mean, our, our, our grandchildren, Chris or Kayla's grandchildren, are going to a Protestant school right now. You know, We had them for the weekend. I, I cannot tell you how... What a lovely weekend. I mean, they had all sorts of questions about Christ, and it was wonderful to talk to them. They're learning all about Christ. So it's not like it's a black-white world and they're completely outside of it. They're not. I mean, they're relating to Christ everywhere in the world, so it's not sufficient to say, you know, it's completely lost, but there's a sense in which something in the natural order is, is cut off if that's the way you begin um, I thought what you did, hold on, I thought what you did last week was really good when you were, I know you were struggling to be careful when you said something to the effect that the beginning point for the Catholic is more modest, humbler, you know, that, um, and by, just see the way that that's true with Christ. And I can't say that's strong. Christ was God. 
he entered matter. I mean, can there be a stronger invitation for us to know the nature of matter than the fact that our God entered it? He took on lowly things. The, the blessedness should come to us as humans because that's the way he made us. Um, anyway, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, oh, uh, no, that's when you brought up the poem, because of the poem, like, like the, the belt, when it belt, like the... Right. Okay, um... The buckling? Buckling, yeah. sorry. Um, but you were saying that that is part of the natural order, and we see God in it, in mm -hmm. that manifestation, right there in the natural order. Right, and in that. Meaning, and Milton does not approach... He, become, he had, gives us, you saw, I said it was a super sensible reality. There's no way he's deriving that from, from an experience such as that poem. Because he doesn't start with that. He starts with a super sensible reality. Yeah. He's starting with an angelic world. Like Remember, the poem opens with us, with Satan. So we're already in a world of angels. Almost like the mountain analogy. Or the right. Mountain right. It's like, right. Well, okay. Awesome. But Milton didn't not theological, this Only if you say that because a poet writes poetry, he doesn't invest in his poetry, his theological mind. And we can't say that. He may believe that, but it's still fiction. <laughs> the Wind Hover is a piece of fiction. But you cannot read that without seeing a theological meaning to what's going on. You can't, there's nothing in the world, I'm going to say, and I'm really going out on a limb, there is nothing in the world that doesn't ultimately have a religious implication. Somebody can cut it short at some point. I don't want to go here. I don't want to, because I want to get to the poem. I want to get to the poem. You can watch a cartoon and it's fiction and it does a fictional story or a fictional play, but the... The message it's giving out is saying, here is truth, it's doing it in right. a different word. Right, right. Well, no, what it's doing is, it's take, I've said this before, it's taking us back to the world of experience. We're not in a world of ideas. Supernatural, remember, poetry returns us to the world as we experience. We're not in ideas, we're not in arguments, we're in an actual experience. The little girl sewing. Could have been us, one of us. It takes us back to the world, but the way that they present that reveals a deeper meaning. So there, there can be in the greatest of put. I'm going to say, I'm going to say, I don't, I don't believe. I mean, I've read Shakespeare in my life. I believe Shakespeare's Catholic. There's a real debate. The Protestants claim him. The Catholics claim him. Um, there's not a question in my mind. Shakespeare's Catholic. You cannot read a play of Shakespeare without finding a Catholic mind penetrating the deepest things that go on in our souls. And he does it according to regimes. England, Rome, Italy, France. He, he, Shakespeare is showing us the modern world on its edge. The Holy Roman Empire, the, the medieval world is breaking down and Shakespeare is showing exactly what's going on in the modern world. You read his plays, we're in, we're in our world. And there's nothing about his plays that, isn't, that doesn't have a theological implication to it. It, it doesn't have to be explicit. When you get into Dante, it's going to get explicit. Mm -hmm. But it's still, we're still going to be in a fictional world. Um, 
you know, he's going to call a place purgatory, so it's got a explicit theological name. But sorry, I have a question. Uh, Milton is in the seventeenth century. Now, is there anything that is fast forward a couple of hundred years? And I, I, my good friend's a Presbyterian minister, and I don't think she would think that the body is depraved. Just yeah. in a modern yeah. sense. Yes. Because you were looking this back. Yes. So, yes. I mean, are yeah. there any Calvinists around? Are there any other? I don't know. Yeah. That's, that's such a good... All I can do is give you a general cultural sort of answer. Looking at it historically, because when I taught books in a certain period, like Melville, going back to the... If you read Hawthorne and Melville and the, the Transcendentalists and... You can't read it without being aware that the, the, the Protestant culture that was first formed in the um, earlier centuries, 70, early 17th century, 1621, if you read those early divines like Winthrop, and you get men who are absolutely zealous in holding to their Calvinist doctrines, say, or Lutheran, but largely Calvinist. By the time you're in the middle of the... Um, 19th century, 100 years later, they're going. So it's impossible to read that literature and the history of it without, without seeing that a gradual change is taking place. I know that through the literature. I know it through talking with people as well. If you were to talk with somebody today who's Presbyterian and say, where are you in the idea of predestination? And you, we know that that's one of the defining pieces of theology of that religion. Right. If you were to ask them, I remember when we, Suzanne and I were in the Carolinas somewhere, we were with some guy who was Presbyterian, and I asked him, he, I can't, what was his, he said, that's an, we don't even talk about it, or, and I think if you were to talk with most Presbyterians, they'd say, no, we don't believe in that anymore. I know that there are people who do. There was a woman at the wreck that I met who was wearing a shirt, I, th I thought, I thought Calvin was virtually dead because of what I know through literature. Right. There are people, actually in our family, the, the one that we married into, we, the, our daughter-in-law was raised in a Calvinistic family, strictly. The guy who did the therapy on my knee was a part of that, that same congregation. They broke off over a matter of doctrine. So I know that there are people today who strongly adhere to Calvin. I don't know. I mean, I haven't done, you know, I don't know. All I know is that most people, that religion has gotten, we, we become more affluent as a people. We're more spoiled. We're more settled. We're not as zealous. So there are lots of people who don't want to lose that zealousness who hold on. There are lots of people who continue to be Presbyterians, um, whatever, I mean, um, Methodists and Congregationalists, you know, who, who don't hold, they become that. If you were to ask them to reflect on their theology, they wouldn't even know what to say. That's what they were taught when they grew up. That's what they believe. That's what they, their children will believe. Um, I mean, the melting pot isn't just a sociological. It's, it's also a description of what takes place in religious beliefs over two centuries. Um, so I know, I know personally there are people who are deeply believe in Calvin and predestination. And I know there are people who are Presbyterians who, who would deny it, yeah, would just say no. no. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. We've got to make this short because this is turning into a catechism class. And it's supposed to <laughs> well, just very quickly, I think yeah. it's important to know that, that yeah. uh, all of these denominations having come from the convert Catholicism. So, you know, we watched a split in the Lutheran Church just in our local congregation, and it is doctrinal. I mean, there's huge splits in each of the denominations, yeah. and it's like everywhere. Yeah. And so you do have different iterations of Presbyterians, of Methodists, yeah. of Lutherans. Yeah. You know, the Anglicans and the Episcopalians, yeah. it's, it's, it's everywhere. So there's it's also historically, if you look over the past several hundred years, people mind-wise, I mean, you can't, they've been coming into their own and wanting to be their own country, their own people, mm. their own whatever, and it comes from historical parts, but if you look at the Enlightenment, if you look at uh, what's happened with uh, the last two centuries especially, it's all about me. And it's but, all about know, what I want, so my group is going to believe this, and if your group doesn't believe that, well, you just go on It goes back to the relativism yeah. you were talking about. So it's, it, my God is this and my yeah. God is yeah, right. We've broken off in the Catholic Church, too. We had those that didn't like Vatican II, and they broke. Mm -hmm. yep. And they said, we are going to say Mass in Latin, and you are not right, and they broke. And we, you know, every mm -hmm. time, you know, it, it's just human nature to... And I don't say computers prank, obviously, because we aren't, but we we have a tendency to to not let go of our will and let God's divine will yes, accept come it. into yeah. us so that we can all align. And until we get to divine will, we're not all gonna align. No, but like what, Adam had divine will. Yeah, what what I want to hold on to here is yes, yes, yes to everything you're all saying, but the fact that there are conversions and changes um, and the fact that there's even fragmenting is an indication of that, but implicitly it also points to the fact that there is a truth mm -hmm. um, or, or they wouldn't be doing it. And e either we're holding on to a truth here and, and some of the unity is still held on to or it was lost in the first place and then there's nothing but relativism, in, in which case we're in a bad way. Um, Christ, Christ said truth, I am the truth. And so we either... Either that it's there or people will make it whatever they want. And, and we know when that happens what the consequences are going to be. Um, where was I going? Uh, I want to get back to this. Um, One comment. A very, very smart priest once told me it was in a group of many different denominations. The more you study, the more you want to learn, the more orthodox you become. Because you start to ask the questions as why, and then you find this counselor, you find this edict or whatever. And he goes, the more you want to know, the more right. orthodox you will become. The, the more you go back to the, to the church fathers, the, church the apostles, yep. and, and on. They answered everything. Uh -huh. yeah. That was John Henry Newman's great discovery. Remember I told you about him in the Tractarian movement in the 19th century when all the Protestants were... Um, a large number of Protestants were upset with the laxness of the church, that it was really conforming too much to the world. And they wanted to, to reform the church. So in, what, in their minds, they were picking up with what the reformers did a century and a half earlier. That clear. I mean, they were, they were doing what they thought count because they were all Protestants. And so many have discovered when they started looking at the history, reading back, at the tradition, they discovered that the problem wasn't in the Protestant church needing reform, that the Protestant had gone wrong from the beginnings and they found themselves converting and going to the Catholic church.
Um, the Catholic Church is amazing because it's the only church that holds on to it, the universality of Christ. Remember, this. I'm going to come to this at the end, so it's partly a giveaway here. What Christ did when he said, go out and baptize all the nations, what Paul did when he went to the Gentiles, everything he did, when he and Peter fought, when Peter said, they've got to be circumcised, and Paul said, no, you can't bring them under the, the law, the Jewish law. Um, the, the one thing that defines Catholicism in its universality God got the purity of God's love, the purity of the spirit is not racial, it's not national, it's not Greek Orthodox, it's not Anglican, it's not Episcopal. It can't be limited by those things. The purity of the spirit in Christ is universal. He came for all of us. When churches start taking a part and making that part a whole, that whole gets lost. And we know what happens. The parts keep fragmenting. Mm -hmm. They keep breaking apart because they're, they're resting on something not true. The great, thing, the great accomplishment of the Catholic Church throughout its, is its universality. Joyce's words, here comes everybody. And we're all here. And the other great thing is that, it, that it's true. This is what's most extraordinary about it. And in my mind, it holds the corporeal, our body, and mystery together. Going to the Protestant denominations, where's the Eucharist? To, to, I mean, or or put, go, to the, go to the scientific, go to the modern rationalist enlightenment scientific mind. Where's the miraculous? Doesn't exist. The only place that holds on to both of those in their fullness is the Catholic world. And, and it's, the one, it's the one institution most under attack for that reason. I don't. I don't want to go. I don't want to go there. Let's stop. I want to get. Sorry. <laughs> Let's go back to this text. Um, there's a fundamental difference in in these two ways of knowing. One of them starts lower. It makes a place for low things, the body, a bird. Dante's going to start with a common thing. He's going to start with himself and an ordinary woman, Beatrice. Um, Milton starts with the angels. That's not an accident. It's telling, even in itself. Okay. Books nine and ten. Here, I want to just very quickly um, go um, summarize them. We're not going to. We're not going to. Sorry, you guys. I blew this class, didn't I? Um, Two, two things to keep in mind here. Two things to keep in mind. Books 9 and 10. Um, 9 deals with the temptation. The whole of the action, everything concerning Satan, has been leading to this point. Right? Whether we saw it or not, the fall that began the epic was pointing here. Because we knew in Satan's opening words, there's no way he's going to overturn God. He had to find something else to do. His choice was to try to destroy what God made. So this is where the whole novel has been, or sorry, the epic has been going. So um, we finally reach that point where Satan accomplishes what he set out to do. And I'm going to say this is the moral center of the book because it's at this point that he tempts Eve. I want to go to those passages. She takes the fruit. Um, she's tricked. And she faces this awful ordeal. 
um, she, if you remember the passages, if you read it well, you know, it's a, it's a twisted agony that she goes through. She contemplates um, not telling Adam because it will make her superior to him, that she doesn't have to be below him anymore. She contemplates killing him, doing away with his life, doing away with her own life. So for the first time since the epic began, we're in the drama of somebody other than Satan. Because I, I, to me, the, what happens in heaven and the wars, to me, is just ridiculous. Again, I can't, I, I, I can't even read those books anymore. Um, but, but what happens with Satan is compelling. What happens here is compelling because we're watching a human couple now have to deal with the fall. She goes to Adam and tells him um, he is stricken. The two quarrel and fight. If you remember, you go back to the opening scenes, Milton's description of them is that everything they do is in perfect harmony. Now they're at each other's throats. Um, she's blaming him because, he, remember, he, she wanted to go out on her own. No and, way, the girl's blaming the guy. <laughs> <laughs> you better be careful, Patrick. <laughs> be still, be still. <laughs> um, um, she blames him because, remember, in the morning when she woke up from the dream, she wakes up saying, I'd like to go out on my own today, and Adam is guarded about that and finally lets her go. Um, he blames her, she blames him, they quarrel, um, and um, finally he's persuaded to eat the apple because the thought of being without her undoes him. And I, I want to come to that because I want to ask, Who's worse here in the sins, Adam and you? But and don't you add any fuel to that fire? Um, see what you all think about that one. Um, in the in book ten, you know that God, the Son, comes to make judgment, and the the couple will go, they'll prepare to leave Eden, um, and the fall will have taken place, and we will see what happens next week. But those are the the last two books. Um, very quickly, let's take a look at a couple of passages because we're. We don't have much time. Very opening of book nine. I want to look at it quickly because an important transformation is taking place here. Opening of nine. This is the fourth and last invocation. Milton's had four invocations spread through the book. This is the last. He says, No more of talk where God or angel guest with man is with his friend familiar used to sit indulgent and with him partake rural repast, permitting him the while venial discourse unblamed. I must now change those notes to tragic, foul distrust and breach disloyal on the part of man revolt and disobedience on the part of heaven now alienated distance and distaste, anger and just rebuke and judgment given, that brought into this world a world of woe, sin and her shadow death, and misery death's harbinger, sad task, yet argument, no less but more heroic than the wrath. Uh, he mentions Achilles. Go on down a few lines. Um, remember, he's been meditating an epic for a good part of his life and thought about doing one on the chivalric romances. He said here, 
Not sedulous by nature to indict wars, hitherto the only argument heroic deem. All epics before this had to do with major battles. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, you know all that. So when he thought about this, it, it obviously meant he'd have to deal with battles. What's sort of ridiculous about this is, you know, in the, in the sixth book, we get this battle in heaven. Well, when you compare that to the battles in the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid, they're real battles. These are almost laughable. Um, if, if angels are immortal, how can one cut off another and expect anything to happen? Because, and they're fused back together again immediately. How can one pick up a mountain and throw it at another and another one throw it? I mean, it, this thing about where he has to find images, but it, it still leaves us wondering, what do these images represent in that invisible world? What kind of clarity do they give us on it? They don't. I think we're left as much in the dark, even with those, maybe even more with those images. But he says, those were the epic topics. Um, to dissect with long and tedious havoc, fabled knights in battles feigned, the better fortitude of patience in heroic martyrdom unsung. So what's his epic about? Not great heroic deeds, the better fortitude of patience and heroic martyrdom unsung. So, remember this, this theme of Milton taking the heroic tradition, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. Dante changes it, but in another way. He takes this heroic tradition and turns it on his head. The, the heroic figure that opens the poem is Satan, and we see what happens to him. He's a, he's a pathetic he, he, he's, re, he's reduced to taking the, the form of a toad and then a serpent. Finally, when he returns, to, and, and this is, it lines up with Odysseus when Odysseus goes to the Falcons and he's telling his stories. He's telling his stories to the angels. They're booing him. They're hissing what, what he informs them about. And right after that, they're all turned into serpents. So this great heroic quest turns to dust. So Milton has taken the whole heroic tradition and um, turned it on its head. Um, go over to about line three, 300. I think, uh, let me see. About line 330 or so, Satan is contemplating this serpent and he's commenting on the ignominy of it, the humiliation of it, that he started off in this noble quest and now he has to assume the, sh the shape of the being of a serpent. About line 325. Um, but harm proceeds not sin, only our foe tempting affronts us with his foul esteem of our integrity. His foul esteem sticks no dishonor on our front, but turns foul on himself, then Wherefrom shunned or feared by us, who rather double honor gain from his surprise prove false, find peace within, favor from heaven, our witness from the event, and what is faith, love, virtue, unassayed, alone, without experience, help sustained. And why have I done all this? Um, um, to, to take on this heroic thing and then suddenly have to take on the form of a serpent to, to carry out this tempting. Um, he comes to Eve about line 460 or so. 
Um, she most in inner looks, sums all delight, such pleasure took the serpent to behold, this flowery plant, the sweet recessive eve, thus early, thus alone, her heavenly form, angelic, but more soft and feminine, her grace her graceful innocence, her every air of gesture or least action overawed, overawed his malice. I mean, this, to me, this is one of these things where Milton is doing an extraordinary thing with poetry, but is it believable? Can, can, a, can a demon who's become a demon, Satan, who's the worst, remember, see, wait, by the way, Satan's fault was not carnal. Man's greatest sins are not carnal whatever any religion wants to make of man's greatest sins are intellectual pride. It's the one thing we share most with Satan. Our carnal sins pale by comparison to our intellectual, what we do with our minds. He, he looks at her and, he, and her beauty overwhelms him. Anybody... What should, does anybody have another response to this, or is this just me? If, if a demon came across the beauty of a woman, what would his response be? Maybe I'm the only one here, maybe. Her heavenly form, angelic, but more soft and feminine and graceful in it, and every air of gesture, at least action, overawed his malice. Overawed his malice? I can't believe it. If, he, if, he, what, if anything, his malice would be intensified. He'd want to destroy it. He couldn't look on it without wanting. I mean, there would, I can't see a division in a demon. What he does is once again humanize. I mean, he make, he, what he does is elevate Eve and, and once again leaves us with this sort of tormented, you know, overawed, his malice but overawed. He did destroy it. He, huh? He corrupted it. Sorry? He corrupted it. Corrupted what? Eve. Yeah, he will in a minute. I mean, I mean so. He will, not yet. No, he yet. will, but I mean, when you see it, say, what could he want to do? Well, he did. Yeah, right. I know, but here at this point, I'm saying that this description of... Wait, hold on, just let me get to the next one. Her every air of gesture, at least action, overawed his malice, and with rap, rapine sweet bereaved his fierceness of the fierce intent it brought that space, that space the evil one abstracted stood from his own evil, as if he stands outside of his own evil for a moment. His, she's so, he's so taken by her beauty. Um, and for the time remained stupidly good. I love that line. To me, it's one of it's, it's just a memorable line. Is it believable? What it does is, is is it shows for Milton how great the temptation, the beauty of a woman presents. It's hard for me to believe, but um, Mary, did you wait? Wait, did you? Well, have... it made me think of Samson and Delilah. It's almost like Milton wants to have a little bit of. Well, he just humanizes, and brings sort of sympathy to the human condition, and he wants us to understand or wants to be understood, maybe as an I don't know, as a person, as an author, yeah. a human. That it's like, yeah, it's really hard, and we feel bad for how difficult our temptations are. That's what it seems like to me. <clears throat> also a way of making the beauty of Eve before the fall spectacular. Mm -hmm. um, and he's a, he's a demon and he's never been impressed with glory and beauty and wonder before. So maybe this mm -hmm. is the first time for him. 
I asked this question before, and I'm going to ask it again now, and I know it's, it's um, a little bit off the point, but um, when Satan begins to tempt Eve, um, about line 535, he, first he appeals to her vanity. He, he describes her as being beautiful and and then um, she's taken by the fact that he can speak and um, she mentions the law, the interdiction that they're, in, they're under, that, that their reason is law, that they've been created and God has asked them not to eat of that fruit, so because they're lawful she won't. And then he says, law, what law? If you're lords of the place, why can't you have what you want? Um, and then he appeals to what seems to be a pride to, to suggest that she will be like gods, greater than gods. Um, she eats the she eats the fruit about line seventy eight. So saying her rash hand an evil hour forth reaching into the fruit she plucked she ate earth felt the wound and nature from her seat signed through all her works gave signs of woe. Nature cracks in that moment. Um, what line are you on? About seven, seven eighty, seven seventy five. Sorry, seven ninety. Um, whether true or fancied, so through expectation high of knowledge, nor was Godhead from her thought. Greedily she engorged without restraint and knew not eating death. Satiated at length. That that is like alcoholic or drugs. I mean, she can't stop herself. Um, give me more. Um, and then she abases herself before this tree. Interesting gesture because even though she wanted to be greater than anything, she abases herself before the source of this power, this new power she has. O sovereign, virtuous, precious of all trees in paradise of operation, bless, she's, she goes on. Um, it's at that point that she begins to meditate on what she will do with Adam um, about line 820 or so. Um, but to Adam, in what sort shall I appear? Shall I to him make known as yet my change and give him to partake full happiness? She's questioning whether she wants to share it or whether <clears throat> happiness will put her above him now. Give him to partake full happiness with me, or rather not, but keep at odds the knowledge in my power without co-partner. So to add what wants in female sex, the more to draw his love and tender me more equal. That is, manipulate him in some ways the more to draw his love and render me more equal and perhaps a thing not undesirable, sometimes superior, for inferior who is free. This may be well, but what if God have seen and death ensue? Then I shall be no more. And Adam wedded to another Eve shall live with her and join. I extinct a death to think. The last thing she wants to think is that she'll go and Adam will be with another woman. So envy now. Confirm that I resolve, Adam shall share me in the bliss or woe. So dear I love him that with him all deaths I could endure without him live no more. So she even mm -hmm. meditates on the two of them um, giving up her life, their life. Um, she tells Adam and the two quarrel, we don't have time to do this. Um, I, I want to get to a... a um, Sure. Real quick on back on the line where overawed is malice. 
Okay, so this is back in four, Satan again. Say again. Line four sixty. Yeah. Four fifty-eight. Whatever. Right. If graceful, if the purity of graceful innocence <coughs> struck the devil, who the just the sheer fact that he has the capacity to still see graceful innocence and revere it, um, much less see its beauty and be awed by it. If that overawed his malice and it, it, it left him stupidly good for a second, for a split second, mm -hmm. would not the pure purity in the graceful innocence of, I don't know, Christ and what is good and God, would not the same type of good, pure, graceful innocence overtake his malice? Like, why was he so sensitive to Eve's graceful innocence and not more sensitive to the graceful innocence of the Creator that has that in him and we Answer that question. You said briefly, so I want to make... Answer that briefly. What's the answer? Autonomy. Well, he's already he turned away. Evil, right. They couldn't control God. I mean, he'd already refused it. The revolt means he, he turned, rejected all of that. The nature of his rejection was to turn from that. Refuse it. That's the nature of his revolt. It's just amazing that he would be so not taken back and, and, and humbled by God's graceful innocence. But his whole turn... I guess, see, I mean, he wanted... It didn't... It didn't... It didn't um, quell his malice in any way. Temper his malice in any way. In fact, it struck it up stronger. I think from the beginning, I mean, otherwise I don't understand the fall. Here's a quick 60-second philosophy thing again. You know, according to the Catholic Church, if, if, there's, if you have any commonsensical understanding of the nature of good and evil, that um, evil has to be a privation. That has to be. And I don't know if that's clear to everybody. If good and evil, the Eastern religions believe that good and evil are co-eternal. Some of the Eastern religions, Manichaean, Zoroastrian, religions like that. If they're co-eternal, there's no reason not to choose one over the other. Spirit and matter, they very often define it in those terms. If they're co-eternal, what's the difference? They can't be reconciled anyway if they're eternal. For any sensible understanding of e evil, it, it has to mean God is all goodness. There's nothing evil in him. He created nothing bad. There's nothing bad in creation. To, to sin means to lose something of that goodness, to pull away, draw away from it. So the minute the angels revolted, in that very instant when they revolted, when they turned away from the source of their being, how could anything happen to them that didn't take the form of a privation, a, a diminution, a lessening? That's the very nature of evil. Evil's not an active thing. We can, we can do evil things, but the evil we commit represents a it's like a breach in being. We take something away. Destroy is the best way of describing it. We destroy something. When we commit sins with each other, we're taking some goodness away. When we don't deny ourselves and do something stupid, even, it's not, it's, even if it doesn't take a physical form of an injury of another person, let's say we, we hurt somebody with our words, we're taking something away. Christ calls it a murder. I mean, when we backbite in and things... Why does he say that? Because we're taking something good away. 
evil is a privation. One of the tr one of the real serious problems that Milton presents as I read him is he keeps treating evil, Satan, as if he's human, as if he can vacillate you know, to go back and forth or regret. Once evil turns from God, I mean this is I think it's Patrick's point is once he once he takes away when denies what should be reverenced or loved or revered. Once the soul turns from that, it's gone. That's what it means. So there can't be anything after that but malice, hatred, a will to destroy. So one of the problems I have with Satan in all of this is we keep getting him as a mixed figure, um, which to me is a little bit alarming because it's hard for me to understand anybody turning away from evil completely. Says wait, wait, Patrick, stop, okay, sorry. stop. Remember the line. Remember the line where God said, "The first sort, I, there will be no remitting of the first sort because they chose to revolt." God says, "No mercy to them. It's out." I said from the beginning, if there was something still good in the in the de demons, then we would have a bad God not to forgive him. But there's not. There can't be anything in a demon who turns from God that's good. If God if there's something to be forgiven, then we've got an awful God not to forgive. So we can't have a picture of a demon that isn't absolute malice. Absolute. And we keep getting these pictures of a of a, something regrets and, you know, it's just, it's so humanized. It, it, it suggests some division still. Um, and at this point when he says um, he's overawed, his malice is overawed, and he's stupidly good for a moment, it's just, I, the language to me is extraordinary. But conceptually, hard to do. Quick cap, short one. I was just saying, so it says, the more we choose evil, the more we see good less. Like that, I guess right. We become more blind to what is good, the more we become evil. And so, Say it again. Then we become more blind to what is good, right. the right. more we choose evil. Right, right. So right. it's um, like we're almost dulling our senses to what is good every time we choose evil. And it, I mean, if you're going to revolt against God, if you're the fall, if you are the fallen angel, don't you think it's kind of a blank slate? Yeah. Of insensitivity. Yeah. The other interesting thing, just in light of what we're doing here, if if our I mean, this goes back to what Milton did in Chapter Three with God, and what Dante is going to do in the Paradiso. Um, if our original sin was against God. That's our original sin. It is for Milton. He's, the whole poem was about our original sin. It was against disobedience. If our original sin was against him, can anything a human do, because it involved an infinite being, can anything we do be sufficient to answer it? To atone for it? Absolutely not. There's only one way to atone for it. How? If a God himself came down and took on our form to answer our sin. Why did Christ come? Now, if that's true, and the evil, I mean, taking what Patrick, this is from Lewis. By the way, Lewis is the one who made this argument. Good and evil, are, if they're coetinous, this is straight from Lewis, and there's no reason not to choose evil. The, the wisdom of the church forever has been, evil is a privation. It can't stand next to, there's nothing outside of God's being. Everything he made is good. We, we make things bad by turning away from him. If our sin was against God, can we answer it without his help? I'll go even farther. 
is hearing his word in our head enough or do we need his actual presence within us? Accidentally, we need. Well, that's where I'm going. I mean, you know, I'm. I mean, that's in the back of this. I mean, it goes to this Reformation idea again. If this is as large as we see it, is that evil is. Um, one of the things that, by the way, one of the things I don't like about this thing here is that in the presence of Eve, because I think all all the great fathers said that if we look at an angel and compare an angel to a human being, Robert Barron says this, by the way, in that collection of books I was talking about earlier. If we think about an angel in comparison with us, we're talking about, it's like taking a look at a pro who's been in the pros for 50, 40 years and a rookie. We are overmatched, without a question. Fool around with Satan, think you can match him? To tempt him t- terrifies me. To think that we can take that guy on? Um, if, if the sin is that great, if we've got that kind of a temptation to face, can we do it without Christ? Why did Christ say, I'm the living bread, unless you eat of this? Why did he say that? Unless he knew that without it, we wouldn't have enough to answer this. And this whole book, in some sense, magnifies it for me because Satan is this extraordinary... I mean, he gets reduced to nothing at the end. But when I come across passages like this, overawed, stupidly good, I want to pick up the book and put it down gently. <laughs> Here, here's my question quick. We've only got a few minutes, but I because we don't have time to look at this. The sun comes and gives judgment in book 10. And we're brought to the, to the moral center of the epic. Here's my, here's my two questions. What do we do with Milton's view of man here as we reach the moral center of the book? And what do we do with his reading of Genesis? Let's take the first one. I'm sorry, I'm sorry I took so much time with these other things. I really do apologize. I wanted to look at the passages where Adam and Eve quarrel. Oh, and by the way, after they get through quarreling, remember the first time they, they um, celebrated their nuptials. Adam took her by the hand. They went into the bower. Everything they did was absolutely gracious. After they quarreled, he grabs her in, tears her in, and he describes it in terms of this sort of rapacious, the two of them, passionately, Passionately, it's just almost violently making love. They're in a carnal violence. That's how great the, the change is. So mark the change that took place from the opening and the, the, the prayers that they said, you know, and then they're retiring to enjoy sex with each other. And then here, when they are furious with each other and, um, and make love in a very, very different. What's Milton's view of man? There are two questions that for me can't be separated, but I want to take them separately. What's his view of man, and and how does he affect our reading of Genesis with this poem? Because he's taking us back to a biblical story, and he's radically changed it in so many ways, so many ways. So let's take the first one. What's Milton's view of man and woman? And the other, the other, sorry, I'm going Sorry, this is the one I asked you earlier, a couple, couple of classes ago. I take it, you, some, you can argue with me, feel free. I take it that pride is a consequence of the fall, not a cause of it. For Milton to show Satan appealing to a vanity or to a pride, for me, I have trouble with that. 
Can anybody imagine Satan? Because this is this is Milton's reading of Genesis. This isn't in Genesis. It doesn't happen like this. Here he's appealing to her envy, her pride, her vanity. Are those present in an unfallen woman in Eden? Or I mean in Eve? So how does Milton what can we say about the temptation? What can we say about man and woman, his view of man and woman in the way that he presents it? And what finally do we say about his treatment of Genesis? Okay. Initially we're we're to believe that man and woman are created in God's image. But Milton's view of it and, and therefore not perfect, but uh, as perfect as you can get without being God. Mm-hmm. How's that? It's a good no. way of putting it. Yeah. They are perfect. Right. Uh, but in Milton's view, in, in his writing, they aren't so perfect because there is envy and, uh, and with Eve looking in the, the water and seeing uh, the image and thinking, you know, Finding out, oh, that's me. I'm so beautiful. Although at that time she doesn't know it. Oh, I mean, she's okay. looking at the image. Oh, she okay. just sees the beauty and is overtaken by it. I mean, one of the questions to ask here is: Does does what Satan do evoke an envy, a pride in her? I mean, how do we read this passage? It's crucial. This is the fall. It's, it's almost like the sin. Technically, you know, envy is a sin. You know, the sins were there, but they weren't recognized. I mean, hubris is the well, that, that's, that's the number one sin that, that drove it all. And it's almost like everything's driving to that. So he's driving, and, you know, you're going to be as good as God. You know, and her thoughts after she, you know, all of that is driving towards hubris. And it's almost like the other sins are there, but they're not recognized. So I don't want to say they're sinful, but the actions are there, but the meaning is Can isn't. we get concrete? Because I want to be really, I don't want to accuse Milton of something he's not doing. Does he, does he call these out and what he says, says to her? Pride and envy, and because they're not there, does he call them out, or how do we how do we look at what takes place? Yeah, Richard. Does he project on them what his feelings are or his thoughts? Because I would think before the fall, and you don't have those thoughts, those feelings, or anything like that, but he projects those on him as he describes it. I mean, that's a good question. It's sort of the question I'm asking. Can anybody try for a second? This is a game, and I'm, we don't have to. Can anybody imagine what Satan... Let's get pride out of the picture. Envy, they don't exist. This is a perfect woman. Satan did something with this woman. The, the typical way of reading it is Milton's. That's the established way of reading Genesis after Milton writes. This is the way... This, I think by and large the Protestant world, certainly, and I think probably a lot of the Catholic world, this, we, that's the way we read Genesis, if you've read Milton. My question is here. Let, my question is, can you imagine t- keeping Eve flawless, perfect, so that she's without these things bef- before the fall? Because he can't play them; they're not there. Um, or does he bring them out? I mean, that's my question. But can you, anybody in here, imagine Satan doing something else to tempt her, to, to fool her? Do we just accept that this is the way that it happened, or can we imagine that like might have happened has differently? To make her, quote unquote, weak to tempt her, because if she was perfect, she would, he wouldn't be able to corrupt her. So it's almost like he has to show her 
a little bit tarnished, even though not knowing so, in order to because if it was he didn't tend to Adam because he was supposedly part. And that's the question. What do we? How do we? Explain? But doesn't he, doesn't wait, wait. he use the fact that you'll you'll be more like God? He he kind of plays to her. Um, Why would she want to do that if she had no pride? Everything about her is earlier is humble. She, she says, of Adam, you're my Lord. You know, I for you, you for God. If she's in the presence of God, she, and Adam has spoken with God, um, I mean, to me, it's a, it's a very problematic scene. It's, but I want to think she did it for a good reason. <laughs> <laughs> so do I, honestly. <laughs> so do I. She, she knew it was wrong, but it, she kind of, somewhere in her mind, she, it's, Sort of, you know how the father says a lot of people come to confession with excuses and not sin. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> oh, so yeah, right. It's like that's why it takes so long. <laughs> or they go to the confession blaming. Yeah. He did it. Is it well, wait, wait, wait. Is it the case? And I, I don't know, but I think possible that when God gave the mandate to Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he was not made yet. Right. So if that's the case, is it? I've always wondered. Did he not give the memo? There's one of those excuses. Did she not get the memo? Eve. Eve. Well, because because the way the way the serpent deceives her, he twists it as he will do, which is you can't eat. Any of the, I think, you know, we'd have to look at Genesis, but I yeah. think he says you can't eat any, and that's not actually what God said. He says you can eat any, not this one. And so it's as if she didn't know. You have to be very careful with Genesis because it's a creation story, and it was taken out of Aramaic, and, and then into Greek, and then, I mean, none of that stuff translates literally. None of it does. But let's. Well, it has to translate somehow. We've got to have it's something. Not, I mean, we've got to have something to talk about, so let's take it. Mary, here's my. Well, there is no there. Well, but Satan twists. I mean, that's the word wicked. Yeah. It needs to be twisted. So he perverted God's command. But then the question, I mean, I take your point. It may be that there's a translation. I don't no, know. let's stay. I mean, let's, because we have to have something to work. Let's take that as well, because that's what Milton was working with. It's what, so it's, was what you're, you're talking about. Milton thinks she knows, she knew. I, 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 she, she does because it's at least as Milton does because he makes it clear when they talk about the prohibition for both of them when he okay. says little enough to do because it really is nothing they've got a perfect life here wait, Mike, is what you said true of both accounts I'm, of I'm Genesis about to me it's never made sense unless we take it that both of them knew because I've always wondered because otherwise, why would there have been a tempting unless there was something for her to lose that she knew about? So. The interesting thing about the creation story is that it's mythic in its dimensions. That's what makes, that's what, I mean, I, I don't question the literal representation of it, but all of us know that there's a mythic aspect to that as the beginning that makes it different from Exodus or, num you know, everything else that happens. Sure, um, yeah. But Adam was the only one that had the, was told. He was the only one given the order. She wasn't, I don't think she wasn't given the order. So but she knows. 
she knows. She right? knows. She knows, but she's not the one that God directed. Here, wait, quick, before we go, who's worse, Adam or Eve? They're equal. Paul calls the woman the weaker vessel. Oh, but that's because. Who, come on, I'm asking you guys. Leave Paul out for a second. Valerie, who's worse? Did you have something? Who's worse, Adam or Eve? She's made from Adam, so well, this they're kind of equal in only, that respect. The only two people who she wants to kill him. She, she wants to have power over him. I mean, we see evil things in her. But who's worse from their sin? Anne Marie. Did Adam realize that Paul was happening before he took the apple? Yeah. Then I'd say Adam's sin is greater because yeah, Eve's tricked. I mean, we don't yeah. know. This oh, is, yeah. No? He chose. He, he, he knew. He believed her. That that is here. I mean, here's here's Mil here's Mildred's treatment of men and women. Woman has this extraordinary beauty. Men can be exorious. He can love a woman too much. He he disobeys God knowingly. She doesn't. She's deceived. We have to go because we're supposed to be out here. See you guys. 11 and 12 next week and we're done. <laughs>